The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Alliance Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to another episode of the Rebel Podcast. Uh, this is P Nate, and I'm in Garage Mahal with Dave on the knobs and dials once again. And I'm joined in studio uh, by our guest today, uh, Patricia Angler from Answers in Genesis. Thanks for being with us. You bet. Thanks for having me. So Patricia is here and we have a lot of things to discuss, but before we do that, I'm just going to get through some of our housekeeping items. So we are the Rebel Podcast and uh, you generally are listening to us middle of the week, but there are several podcasts on our network, Fathers of the Faith for Covenant Kids. It comes out on Mondays. Uh, We also have Awakening Reformation Podcast. It's coming out on Tuesdays. We just have a new book that came out through Ezra Press called Behold Your King. That's an Advent family study guide. Uh, You can find out this, uh, all of our blog posts, articles, all that kind of stuff at rebelalliancemedia.com. For anybody who does want to give back to the show or, or so into this ministry, patreon.com slash rebelalliance is where you can do that. The content will always be free, uh, but for those of you who are able, uh, we greatly appreciate all the donations and support that you give us through that. Thank you. We're going to start off with a piece of Rebel news. So I'm kind of putting Patricia on the spot a little bit here because uh, she didn't know about this one. We generally start off with something going on in the culture, and I think this will actually tie into what some of the things that we're going to talk about today. So this is uh, an article that came out yesterday. That's uh, November 5th on LifeSite News. I'll just read uh, the first little bit of this article and then we'll discuss it a little bit. The, uh, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms is representing a young girl and her mother in an application before the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal against the Ottawa Carleton District School Board, the child's former teacher and the principal of the school. The family brought the claim for discrimination on the basis of gender identity. So generally, when these sorts of things uh, are in the news, what we're thinking is there's a student who identifies as the opposite gender of their biological sex, and they're bringing a claim for discrimination to the Human Rights Tribunal. But this is a little bit different. Basically, what happened in this classroom, I'll read a little bit here. This six-year-old girl, uh, which would put her in grade one, had a teacher who showed the class a YouTube video entitled He, She, and They, Gender, Queer, Kid Stuff Number 2. The video contained a number of statements about gender identity and asserted that some people aren't boys or girls and that those who don't feel like a she or a he might not have a gender. And in order to illustrate this to the class, she put a, a kind of, Uh, a spectrum chart at the front of the class 
had everybody in the class come up and put themselves somewhere on that spectrum. And so when the girl in this case, uh, who's six years old again, remember that she comes up and she's from a Christian home and she puts herself as far on the female side of the spectrum as she can. And then after all the students had done this, the teacher stands up and basically says, there's no such thing as boy or girl. Uh, where you put yourself on the chart is just how you feel at the time, but this is all fluid and can all change. So this young girl actually went home. She told her parents and repeatedly was asking why her identity as a girl was, quote, not real. She stated that she was not sure if she wanted to be a mommy when she grew up and asked if she could go to the doctor to talk to the doctor about this issue. The daughter also expressed the feeling that she had to do something about the fact that she is a girl, even though her teacher told her that she might not be. This followed a lesson um, by the teacher on the concepts of gender spectrums, uh, which was a week-long thing, so this went on for several days afterwards. I, apparently, neither the school nor the teacher obtained parental consent to teach uh, the children this, uh, this sort of thing. The family, once they expressed their concerns to the school, nothing was done to the teacher, no apology was given, and uh, apparently the, the girl the family is claiming now as they bring this to the human rights tribunal that the girl has had to see a psychiatrist and that they, she's had to undergo counseling they've since taken her out of the school all of this is before the human rights tribunal now so we don't know how this story is going to end but just interesting that first of all this christian family and the place that's representing her sorry uh, the justice center for constitutional freedoms is sort of using the progressive laws against the progressives in this case right so this is a a biological female who who identifies as a female who's saying that her gender identity wasn't protected or wasn't safely cared for in the environment of the class which is interesting because it's kind of them using their laws against them i just was curious your thoughts on this story Right. Yeah. Well, definitely. Of course, I'm always trying to tie things back to the worldview that that all these things come from. So it reminded me of when I was going through university, I had a professor say, God did not create people, people created God. Hmm. And if you're in a society where people created God, that means that people get to write the rules however they want. So that leaves the definitions for everything open-ended. So you can define family however you want. You can define being human however you want. And you can define what even gender and everything like that looks like however you want. So it's just another clear example of how society has gone very far from the foundation of God's word. So we're taking on the responsibility to write these rules for ourselves. But then when we do, messy things happen because humans can't just agree on morals, right? So so that's why we see these conflicts of rights. Right. And I think uh, what you said there at the end that we can't just make up our own rules. I think that's, that's exactly the problem that's going on here. And so even in this, I think it's kind of cool to see the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms kind of using the progressive laws against the progressives. But even that said, as soon as you abandon the objective standard of God's word, right, all it becomes is a he said, she said, right? It's, it's, it's whoever yells louder, right, gets the moral high ground in, in whatever case they're arguing. And that's really what we're seeing in the culture, I think. I mean, I think you would probably agree that it, both in Canada and in the U.S., we're seeing a political and ideological divide that's greater than anything we've seen in the last several decades. And part of the problem is because we've rejected God's word as the objective standard of truth. And because we've done that, all it becomes is a screaming match and whoever 
whoever yells loudest wins. And so all that does is it turns every moral quandary into a fight. Totally. Nothing outside of that argument and the subjective feelings of the people in that argument in order to appeal to. And so it just becomes messy. And uh, and all these news items that we uh, generally read one before uh, each episode, all of them have to do with this. It's just a clash of worldviews and it's just a fight. And the reality is, is that the court system is not set up to adjudicate on ethical issues, right? There's laws and there's ethics and they're not always the same thing. And uh, as soon as you abandon God's word, what do they have to stand on except democratic thought? What's the moral consensus? So it's a messy world we've gotten ourselves into, but I think that'll lead well into, and it it might even be able to bring us full circle in our conversation today. We're going to take a quick break and then I'm going to introduce you to Patricia and to everything that she's doing through Answers in Genesis. So here's a quick break. You can hear about a conference that's coming up and we'll be right back. Join Bible Discovery TV at Answers in Genesis Gospel Reset Mega Conference this November 20th to 22nd at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Niagara Falls. Come be equipped by apologist and evangelist and a PhD scientist, including the founder of Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, Mr. Ken Ham. Don't miss out on this faith-building event. Go to AnswersInGenesis.org website for information and registration. Okay, we're back. I'm here with uh, Patricia Engler. So you recently have been hired by Answers in Genesis. So, so why don't you take a minute just to tell our listeners who might not be familiar with Answers in Genesis what that is. For sure. And what your role is. Yeah, so Answers in Genesis is an apologetics organization and ministry. So apologetics, of course, that's the defense of the Christian faith from a, a logical and intellectual perspective. So I tell youth it's like self-defense, but for your beliefs. So you're defending why is the Bible true and how do I know what God's word says is reality. So that's what our focus is, and especially presenting the message of biblical authority. So why should we trust the Bible? How do we know the whole thing is true? And setting that within the context of Genesis, which sets up the foundation for the rest of the doctrines in the Bible. Right. So before we get into some of the meat of, uh, I think you have a really interesting story in how you got to where you are. And your story kind of, well, of course, your story starts 14 years before where I'm going to take you. But 14 years ago, you're kind of at a bit of a crossroads. And tell us just about 14-year-old you and the journey that's gotten you to where you are now. So when I was 14, I didn't really care that much about Genesis and especially creation and evolution and the whole origins controversy. So I grew up in a Christian home, so I knew that it was it was an issue. It was there. It was important, but I didn't know how important it was. And I thought that specifically like creation displays at museums with the fossils and the arc models. I thought that was just a hobby for people. So <laughs> some I, people are really into it and some people aren't. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I thought it was just one of those side issues. And I really cared about things like missions and justice issues and the church's future and important stuff like that. Right. But then when I was 14, I went to a conference where Anches and Genesis was represented and I heard Ken Ham speak and he connected all the dots for me so I could see how everything I knew to be important really did depend on Genesis at a foundational level. Hmm. So that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Before I ask you about them, so just tell us who Ken Ham is and his connection with Anches and Genesis. Yeah, for sure. So Ken Ham is the founder of Anches and Genesis. 
So it was awesome getting to hear him speak. And he's the guy who's responsible. So those of you who hear that name, but you can't quite connect the dots, the Ark Encounter, the Creation Museum, uh, all that kind of stuff is under Answers in Genesis. And so Ken Ham is kind of the brain behind it. He's the founder and he's still the president, CEO, whatever you want to call it, right? So now that's in the States. We're up here in Canada. How did Answers in Genesis come to Canada? Yeah, well, that was pretty recent. So just mm. in the past year or so. So in between, so that's like a, a good 10 year gap there. Yep. And in between, I was using the resources from Answers in Genesis in the US. So trying to pump myself up with apologetics materials because I knew that I wanted to be an apologetic speaker at some point. Hearing Ken Ham was kind of the turning point for me. Okay. So I decided that I should go study science at Secular University so that I could learn well, a couple things. One, more about evolution in depth, because evolution is one of culture's main favorite frameworks for attacking Genesis. Yep. And second, I wanted to learn how to help other Christian students navigate secular education without losing their faith, because that's one of the things I'd read in Ken Ham's books is when students grow up in, in the church, say, but they're not actually equipped with answers to their questions, as soon as they hit university, they get blindsided by all these ideas about evolution and other worldviews they haven't heard before. And that can be one of the large factors driving this massive exodus of youth we're seeing from the church. So I wanted to learn how to stop that. But first I had to kind of test drive that on myself to see if I could keep my faith and right. then see if what helped me would help other students. So here you can start to kind of see the new things God was laying on your heart and how they intersected with some of the things that were already on your heart, right? So you have a, you care about the church's future. You said it was one of, one of the things. And what you're seeing is that the church's future in some ways, I mean, we know that Christ said he was going to build this church and the gates of hell would not overcome it. But we also know the statistics of how we're bleeding young people. And so your care for the church's future kind of intersects now with this idea that, well, part of the reason the church's future is looking more and more bleak is because uh, young Christians don't have answers to their questions. Exactly. Okay. So, and so you decide to kind of go into the belly of the beast, so to speak. That's so you, right. you're thinking, okay, so I've, I've gotten excited and passionate about the creation account and about Genesis and about a Christian worldview of origins. Therefore, I'm going to go to university and I'm going to study the opposite worldview. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talk to me by people who, who don't agree with a Christian worldview. So tell me a little bit about that process and, and what you did to prepare yourself. Yeah, definitely. So to prepare myself, I definitely loaded up on as many apologetics resources as I can. I made my parents drive us down to the Creation Museum and we bought a whole bunch of books there. Nice. And I started just like researching apologetics online. And I also got a mentor who is a biblical creationist. So that's Dr. Margaret Helder, who's got her PhD in biology. And she headed up the Creation Science Association of Alberta, where I lived at the time. So I was a teenager at that point, but my mom was like, oh, you should email Dr. Helder and see if you can connect. So met her and she continued mentoring me all throughout the rest of high school and university. That's awesome. So this isn't kind of the main point of our conversation, but maybe just as a little aside, I think all of our parents think that, you know, everybody else should be as invested as in my children as I am. But what's amazing is that you approached Dr. Helder and she was willing to do this. And I think that's that's something that's so sometimes overlooked. I think sometimes, you know, I know as a pastor, I have plenty of people who send me an email or phone me or whatever. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know you're so busy, but... 
And let me just speak to that. And I would just say most Christian leaders, whether they're in the secular world and, and a PhD in biology or whether they're pastors or, or people involved in Answers in Genesis, most of us care enough about the future of the church and about young Christians that we would gladly give up our time. This is what we're here for. So, so don't be afraid to reach out because that obviously had a tremendous effect on your life. Totally. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be a complicated thing. Like I would just bring her a list of my questions every semester. So only like a few times a year I was actually mm. meeting, but then if a question came up, I could also email her. So yeah, but just knowing that she was there and was willing to help and answer my questions was huge. Totally. So what university did, did you go to? That was on the West Coast in Canada. So really liberal, yeah. <laughs> yeah, about as liberal as you can get. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I could tell you lots of stories about what I, what I experienced. I started out at a, at a college, really a little college, and then I transferred to the larger university. Okay. So, and so just, I, I mean, if you want to tell any specific stories, go for it, but just tell me what was that time like? I'll just give you an ex- some examples of things that yeah. I heard in class. So for instance, in biology class, I heard my professor say, there isn't a single piece of evidence against evolution. And I had another professor who, before the class even start, emailed everybody in the in the lecture and said, hey, you know, before you come, you should know that like we're going to be covering evolution in this course. It's The whole course is going to be about human evolution. So if you can't accept that and if your worldview doesn't accommodate evolution, you should consider that this isn't the best class for you to take. Wow. So all throughout the class, like he wasn't just talking, he was talking a lot about, you know, creationists and their weird ideas, but he was also, you know, questioning Jesus's existence and and really going off like that. And I had several textbooks that spent a long time, whole sections trying to counter creation arguments specifically. And I was actually being trained to think like an evolutionist and to counter the biblical worldview. It's quite striking to me. It's been a few years since I've gone to university. I don't need to say how how many years. It's fine. (laughs) But it seems to me that a few decades ago, that primarily what was being taught was evolution with the absence of creation. But it seems to me like your more recent experience is now evolutionists and the evolutionary textbooks have actually accounted for the the resurgence of sort of the intelligent design movement and, and creationism kind of, I guess, having more of a scientific basis now than it did a few decades ago, I think, or I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that, but certainly the science behind the creation movement and the intelligent design movement is a little bit more well known now than it was a few decades ago. I'll say it that way. And so it seems like the professors and the textbooks have accounted for that. And now they're not just not meant mentioning creationism, but they're actually countering the arguments of creationism as they teach evolution as fact. Is that accurate? For sure. And what's interesting is this isn't just in the hard sciences. So you might think, oh, if I go study biology, I have to think about evolution. But no, because remember, we're talking about a worldview. So if you say that you're not a created being, that affects the nature of humanity. So that's going to translate into affecting any kind of class that deals with the nature of humanity. So for instance, my critical thinking class, it was a philosophy class that had an entire textbook chapter that was attacking creationist very vehemently and then also the anthropology class I took that also had a a chapter like that so we're talking anthropology philosophy psychology it's not just limited to the biology classes even when I was in university I mean uh, in a lot of my cultural studies classes We would inevitably, it seemed like every class I took inevitably came back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is so rooted in the assumption, the presuppositions of evolution. 
And uh, so it touches, like you said, whether it's the social sciences, the sciences, languages, philosophy, it really does kind of touch everything. And I think what's so insidious, I think, about it in university systems is that it's just an assumed presupposition, right? So now you have entire worldviews built on this faulty presupposition. And so you're, uh, you get a whole lot of people who will buy into the effects and not necessarily recognize what foundation that's built on. Okay. So you come out of uh, university, your faith is intact. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about that. So you went in with the view, okay, I need to go in and I do need to experience this first, but in the back of your mind, the whole time you're kind of thinking, I want to be able to be of help to other students going through this. Yeah. So talk to me about how that developed uh, as you went in and as you came out. So throughout my time at university, I started to develop just different critical thinking tools to help me process all the information I was hearing that challenged my faith, because no matter how much apologetics information you learn ahead of time, there's always going to be a new question that comes up because there's always going to be new information that can challenge a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn kind of how to think like an apologist on the spot in my classes, just different critical thinking tools like that. And then I also learned again about the importance of mentorship, attending local church and campus ministry while you're in university, close to God. So I started to put all this information I'd learned from my own experience together and kind of came up with this hypothesis that there are three types of foundations Christian students need to survive the secular education system like what I'd just experienced. So that's the spiritual foundations is maintaining the close personal walk with God, Mm -hmm. owning your own faith, having biblical literacy and a knowledge of what the Bible actually teaches. And then intellectual foundations, which is your apologetics training and critical thinking skills. And then finally, the interpersonal foundations, which is your Christian support network, family, friends, church, mentors. So that's what was in the back of my mind. This is what I think is going to help students. But if that only applied to me, it wouldn't really help anyone and help the future of the church. So I decided to see, okay, I need to figure out how universal are these three solutions. So going back to how I'm also interested in missions, I really wanted to travel once I left university. And I'd also known, going back again to just how prevalent evolution is in public education, that over 68 national and international academies, which oversee like countries' education standards, have pledged to teach evolution in their public schools. So we're not just talking about Canada or the U.S., but this is like Albania to Zimbabwe, countries all over the world. So after I graduated, I printed out a map and just shaded all the countries in red that had made that pledge. And I realized that the red band wrapped the entire way around the planet. So I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to start traveling to some of these countries and see if I can talk to students there about how they kept their faith in evolutionary and secular education. Hmm. So I thought, obviously, I can't travel the whole way around the planet. (laughs) Maybe I should just start in Europe. Because Europe, actually, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe passed a resolution called Resolution 1580 in June 2007, which was called The Dangers of Teaching Creationism in Public Education. And the whole resolution is talking about how the creationist worldview basically undermines human rights and everything like that. So which is there's you could go through and point out how all of that isn't true. But this is what Europe is promoting. And the Parliamentary Assembly urged its 57 member nations to sign that same pledge. So I thought, well, I definitely want to go to Europe. Seriously. Yeah, totally. And I wanted to go to Asia because Eastern spirituality is really pushed in Western education because it has that same foundation of being based on man's word. And interestingly, when evolution was becoming popular in the West, 
That allowed for Eastern spirituality to spread to the West as well, because it shook people's belief in Genesis and in the God's word, but people still have this need for spirituality. Right. So that's where Eastern spirituality came in because it can accommodate evolutionary ideas, but doesn't require you to believe in Genesis. Right. So now we see a lot of that in public education. I went through classes where I was having to learn, well, they were trying to teach Zen Buddhist meditation and yep. stuff. So I thought, okay, I want to go to some Eastern countries, see if I can learn about the roots of Eastern spirituality a little more. I kept wanting to go to all these places. <laughs> and then finally I decided, man, maybe I'll just try to get the whole way around the world. Okay, so that was your decision, and what happened? Right. Well, I looked up the laws because I'd, I'd never tried to backpack around the world before <laughs> or long term, so I found out that I could be away from Canada for six months without losing my residency benefits like healthcare. So I thought, okay, I'm going to call this project 360 and 180 because I want to get 360 degrees around the world in 180 days and still be a Canadian when I get back. <laughs> so, yeah, so I decided to do that. I didn't have any fundraising or organization or team supporting me. It was just just me and God in a backpack. So I started praying and knocking on doors and then booked a one-way ticket to Australia. Good for you. Okay. So, so when was this? Right. So I left in September of 2018 and then I, I would have got back just this past March. Awesome. And then I only started planning about three months before I left. So I really had no idea what I was doing, but I learned that so long as I had a one-way ticket leaving whatever country I was going to, I could get in on a one-way ticket. So I only had to plan one country ahead of time. So when I left, I didn't know where I was going to go. And it was just like, okay, God, you got a lead. So so many of us can't imagine kind of stepping out of our comfort zones for, you know, a moment to whether it's share our faith or, or, you know, do something, uh, that, uh, that makes us uncomfortable. And here you are, you know, committing to going to a completely different country on a one-way ticket with just kind of, like you said, God in your backpack. So I guess my first question is, what did you learn? And we'll start first of all, with just kind of spiritually, you know, obviously you went there to, to interact with students and, and learn about what you're, the work that you're now doing, but what sort of spiritual benefits did that have just kind of being you God in your backpack? For sure. I feel like I got to glimpse the edge of this great secret that I just sort of read a little bit about in say missionary biographies and kind of have glimpsed through other people's stories. But I think it's a threefold secret that God is greater than we imagine he is. And life is simpler than we think it is because mm. the Bible is truer than we live like it is. So for instance, just take the verse in Matthew where Jesus is talking about, don't worry about what you're going to eat and where you're going to, what you're going to wear and stuff, because God knows how to deal with those things. Yep. And we often aren't in a situation in our day-to-day -day lives where we have to take him at his word like that. Yeah. But when you are in that place, you realize that life is simpler than we think it is. It really is just take the Bible seriously. And God is greater than we imagine him to be. So I could tell so many stories <laughs> along those lines. And it was just awesome getting to really experience God in a way I hadn't before. I mean, it sounds like six months worth of exploits uh, doing all this stuff. You would have a million stories to tell and we would fill up more than the amount of time we have today. Is there anywhere that, that people can hear some of those stories? How can they hear them or read them? So right off the bat, um, starting this week, every week from now on, there's going to be one of my stories about the trip posted on my blog on the Answers in Genesis website. So that'll be a weekly blog and it's going to go through country by country, the retelling of my trip. And I do have an entire blog post already that's just telling stories like that. Awesome. But then a little further down the road, what the plan is, is that I will, will write a, the whole story in a book and then that'll be available as well. Awesome. And where can our listeners find your blog? 
Right, so if you just go to the Answers in Genesis homepage and then scroll down to the bottom, there's a blog section, and then my name is on one of them as well. Awesome. And then if you really don't want to wait for the book, I have <laughs> all the stories, a lot of them written down on the personal blog that I was using at that time as I just blogged the trip myself, which was patriciaengler.com. So if you are really anxious, you can look <laughs> there, but all the apologetics connections are going to be on the Answers in Genesis website. Awesome. Okay, so obviously, I mean, you learned a lot about your just relationship with God and relying on God and his word. Um, but as you're going, you have this mission and the mission is to kind of discover how students kept their faith in all of these various countries. What did you learn? Right. I'll just tell you about the questions I asked. Yeah, please do. So I had four questions that I was going to use to interview students, campus ministry leaders and university chaplains, wherever I found them. So the questions were, what are the challenges of being a Christian student here? What are the opportunities? What would your advice be to another first-year Christian student, and how can the church support students better? Hmm. So as I traveled to what turned out to be 17 different countries, including Canada, so Western countries, Eastern countries, collective countries, individualist countries, Europe, Asia, Oceania, North America, as I traveled, of course, I heard a lot of different answers for the first few questions. So the challenges and opportunities of growing up as a Christian student in some small town in Australia are going to look a lot different than if you grow up in a persecuted nation in a closed communist Buddhist country. However, what was really cool is despite how different these countries were, people's answers to the second two questions, your advice for students and ideas about how the church can support students, those were really similar across cultures. So that showed me that while the problems Christian students face in different countries is different, the solutions are largely the same which is exciting because as churches and ministries and families can focus on using these solutions to equip the next generation of Christian students to keep their faith in secular classrooms and cultures or just non-Christian classrooms and cultures in general, that can make a difference for the future of the church, not just in North America, but around the world. Awesome. And so what are, uh, and again, I, I know that time won't allow us to go as in depth as I know your passions go for these answers and these solutions, but on a peripheral scale, what are some of the solutions? How can the church help? Yeah, totally. Well, what was really interesting is they came back to the three types of foundations that helped me as a Christian student as well. So the spiritual foundations. For instance, I heard so many campus ministry leaders around the world say, we see youth growing up in church, they're filtered through all these age-appropriate programs, but at the end of it, they don't actually know how to articulate what the gospel is. They don't know how to open the Bible and read it for themselves. They can't express what the Bible teaches or why it's important. And they don't know how to apply it to their everyday lives and decisions. So churches need to teach the Bible and teach youth how to use it for one thing and help them gain their spiritual foundations. And I'll just add that when I was a teenager, one of the things that made me want to get my spiritual foundations and develop that close walk with God myself was reading missionary biographies and just seeing all those cool stories of normal people doing crazy things with God made me want to have those experiences too and know God that way myself. So I think that is one of the cool applications for even mentorship in the church. So if you have someone who's older who has experienced God that way, if you can get them telling their stories to the youth, that can really encourage youth's faith and help them grow in their spiritual foundations. So then, of course, the intellectual foundations, especially if you're studying something that you are going to hear about other worldviews, and Mm -hmm. that's super important to have your apologetics answers and critical thinking skills. And then everywhere I went, the interpersonal foundations came up so often, and especially the importance of mentorship. 
So having older people who can speak into your life and encourage your faith and answer your questions. And I thought that was super interesting because often in churches, what happens is we segregate age groups. So we think, oh, the youth need to be off on their own and the seniors need to be off on their own. But essentially what that does is it cuts off mentorship. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of bought this lie from culture and I think from the school systems that age is proportional to relevance, which is totally not biblical and not true. And actually what that does is feed into the cultural attack on youth. Because if you want to change a culture's worldview, you've got to target different age groups differently. So the older people are going to be the most set in their beliefs probably. So you want to kind of marginalize them as best you can and keep them from transmitting those beliefs to the younger generation. But otherwise, you kind of ignore them because they're going to be the first to leave the cultural stage. Right. And then the middle aged people, you just kind of mellow and keep them from being passionate about discipleship for the next generation. But the youth is who you really focus on. So if you can cut off mentorship from the people who are stronger in their faith and really target youth with the new agendas you want to give them, that's how you change a culture, especially because the youth are the least set in their beliefs and they're the easiest to change through the media and the education system in mass. Right. So there's this very effective secular attack on the youth right now. And as a church, we're not really helping things if we separate older and younger people and then don't give the youth the training that they actually need. That's so insightful. You know, when I think about the genesis of our modern Western public school system, Dewey and others really built it off of the Prussian school model, which was essentially adapted because they had been losing a bunch of wars and they recognized that individuals were willing to die for their families, but not willing to die for the state. And so the entire education model was kind of born because they wanted to separate children from their families and be educated by the state so that their allegiance to the state would be stronger than their allegiance to the family. And even Dewey, in a lot of his foundational writing, that we call him the, the father of modern public education, and in a lot of his early writings, he talked about we need to separate children from their families and from their churches, from their fathers and from their pastors, in order to get them to be raised as good citizens, no longer good people or good Christians, but good citizens. And so what you're saying is that that lie... And that approach has kind of infiltrated the church. We look at that model and we say, oh, that seems good. Age appropriate teaching is great. And we buy into the lie of segregation, which you're saying is just not a biblical model at all. For sure. And we're actually helping the secular tack yeah. along in that way. So because whoever controls the kids and influences them influences the future, which is why the attack on the church has been so effective as the secular side has been really targeting their attack on the youth. So what we often do, unfortunately, in Christian circles is give youth the opposite of what they need. So to illustrate that, I used to work at a greenhouse for eight years, okay? And sometimes we'd see these plants, dahlias, and they would look wilted. But if you look at the soil, it's actually really wet. So what happens if, is if you see a wilted plant, immediately you think, oh, I should put water on it. Mm -hmm. But what's happened is the plant has root rot because it's been overwatered. So what looks like the appropriate solution is actually the opposite of what the plant needs. And I think that's what's often happened to youth in the church. So we think, man, youth are leaving the church. We need to entertain them more. We need to give them more, you know, relevant, right. yeah, like connections and stuff. So we don't yeah. actually plug them into older people. We don't teach them the Bible. Yeah. We entertain them instead of discipleship. So in a lot of ways, we're treating youth like those dahlias and giving them the thing that's actually killing them. Right. That's really insightful. And I think, 
you know, I have a couple of really young kids at home and, you know, some of the very insightful questions that you get from like a four and five year old is pretty intense. And you think what we've seen is the solution for not losing our kids when they graduate university and when they leave the home is by giving them age appropriate teaching. And we hear that all the time, age appropriate teaching, age appropriate teaching. And that might be a good phrase, but essentially what it means is less depth, right? right? And so we're not giving them the answers to the tough questions that they have. And the problem is then we send them off to university and they're going to find a whole lot of professors who are more than willing to give them answers to those questions. Absolutely. But like what I like to tell youth is actually once you hit teenagehood, you psychologically you're able to handle abstract thinking in those concepts. So if we can teach youth how to think critically and it can be age appropriate in the sense that we don't need to just give the whole thing in Latin, but there's <laughs> ways to deliver complex yeah. concepts that are really useful that they're going to need. So that's one of my main missions is to help deliver those tools to youth in advance. So then they're able to think critically once they hit secular classrooms and culture. That's awesome. Okay. So you go on the six month journey and uh, we've summarized over it very, very quickly. And for those of you who want uh, just go check out the blog and, and follow those stories and wait for the ebook because it's going to be great. But all that said, so you come back and you've discovered that these three things that were really helpful for you are kind of universal across the board. Doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter the ethnicity, they're universal. So you come back with that knowledge and then what? Right. Well, I started speaking everywhere I could, which wasn't very many places. So the last talk I was able to arrange was in my friend's grandparents' living room. But I was like, I just got to stay faithful and God will get the message out if he wants Mm -hmm. to. And then the morning that I was going to give that talk in my friend's grandparents' living room, I get a text from my mom. So to back up, what happened while I was gone is my family randomly moved across the country after 20 years in Alberta. They just like up and left. So when I got back to Alberta, where I started my trip from, I had like no house there anymore, no possessions. (laughs) My family was gone. So it was just me and my backpack still. But my parents had moved to Ontario. And while they were there, my mom went to a conference where Cal Smith was speaking. And before she went to the conference, her friend was like, oh, say hi to Calvin Smith. And he's the director of advances in Genesis Canada. So my mom was like, sure. So she goes and says hello and shows him my blog that I'd been using to document my travels and my experiences in secular education to some extent. And then he called me that morning then that I was going to give that presentation. And from there on invited me to to answers in Genesis. So it was kind of cool, the timing of that. And then also it was cool is Later, my mom went back after the conference, talked to her friend, and she was like, yeah, I said hi to Calvin Smith. And the friend was like, I don't actually know him. So <laughs> she was joking, but because my mom took her seriously, I now have a job with Answers in wow. Genesis. Yeah. So totally God's got God. it all under control, yeah. for sure. Okay, so you come back, and now you're working for Answers in Genesis. So for those of you who need the names caught up, so Calvin Smith is the Canadian director of the Canadian branch of Answers in Genesis, and he's based out of, uh, I want to say Toronto? So our warehouse is in Cambridge right now, but But we all live pretty much around this area, yeah, here in Southern Ontario. So Calvin Smith uh, with Answers in Genesis. So you are now one of their speakers and you're full time now. So congratulations. That's awesome. What's that role? Right. So I do a lot of speaking, then I'm also a writer and then youth outreach coordinator. So that just means I'm going to find all the youth groups I possibly can and then go give this message of biblical authority and how to maintain your faith in secular classrooms and culture to them. So lots of youth speaking, lots of writing, and then even speaking to like seniors groups, for instance, because I want to be able to equip the mentors and get them excited about mentorship and 
So working on all the, the generations here. Awesome. Yep. Okay. So I think this is awesome. And I think it's uh, it's such a necessary ministry and yours is such a, a necessary voice right now. And so let's just kind of turn the conversation a little bit to we're living in a North American context. And I don't know what your interactions were like around the world, but as you come back, I mean, you're gone for six months. So Canada didn't change that quickly. I don't know if you missed any elections or not, but the idea is that in North America now, and particularly in Canada, I think what we've seen is just in the same way that the church has acquiesced to the culture and segregated our ministries and entertained our children when, you know, that was a secular solution, not a biblical solution. We've seen the culture also infiltrate the church in a lot of these key areas that you're talking about. And so there are a lot of churches now who don't necessarily stand firmly on the literal interpretation of Genesis 1, specifically 1, 2, and 3, but really the first kind of 12 chapters of Genesis that we've adopted theistically evolution and all of these sorts of things. So just take a minute to kind of speak to that because there might be a lot of listeners who still listen to us despite the fact that we go on about this quite often. Right. Uh, so speak to that Christian right now who's skeptical about the necessity of standing firm on uh, some of these the creation, literal Adam and Eve, all that kind of stuff. For sure. So, I mean, Ken Ham can express it a lot better than I can, of course. But, but you're here. So right. Have at so it. the whole idea is that every major doctrine in scripture is indirectly or directly founded on teachings that you find in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. So let's take the historical Adam, for instance. If you say that, well, Adam and Eve didn't really exist, that does a number of things. So you're probably saying that because you want to insert some sort of long ages into the Bible into the first chapters of Genesis, million years or whatever you want. Yep. When you do that, you have to say that all the fossils that are in those rock layers that were allegedly laid down over millions of years, there's lots of records of, say, death and suffering and disease and thorns in those fossils, but those are all supposed to be the effects of Adam's sin. So you're kind of putting the cart before the horse there. That's right. So there's that problem, which also undermines God's character because you're basically blaming God for death and suffering. So then prior when people, to Adam's sin. Prior to Adam's sin, yeah. that's right. So then when people say, oh, well, how could a loving God create a world with death and suffering? If you want to believe in millions of years and that it wasn't the result of human sin, you don't really have an answer. So then other things that happen, for instance, is if you say there's no historical Adam, what do you do with all the passages in the New Testament that link Adam to Jesus? Because Christ was a descendant of Adam. So that's the whole reason why Jesus had to die was to atone for the sin of Adam. So all the doctrines of redemption in scripture depend on right. death and sin and Adam and the things that are outlined in Genesis. Right. And so you're left with, number one, a Jesus who seems to indicate that there's a real historical Adam, right? right. He, he calls, uh, he says, just as Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And so he's referring or for the basis of marriage and marriage is a lifelong union. He's appealing to either a historical Adam or a figurative Adam. And if it's a figurative Adam, you deal with the problem of Jesus actually seemed to think he was historical. And secondly, you it's all of the, the difficulty that you get into with Paul then all of his first Adam, second Adam language is comparing a figurative, fictional first Adam to a real and historical second Adam. And I think um, a lot of the university professors who would think that Adam is a fictional character, the first Adam, you know, has led to, you just said in, in uh, university, you were told um, that uh, one of your evolutionary teachers was teaching that there's no historical Jesus exactly. either because yeah. one leads into the other. 
I think that's a really good place to start is that uh, we're told in scripture that the first death that occurs is actually God killing two animals to use their skin to cover Adam and Eve's uh, nakedness and their shame after they sin. And you are stuck with the problem of millions of years of death before that first death, which has all kinds of significance to the entire story of redemption. So, yeah, I think that's excellent. And I think that um, you could go on and on. We don't have time for all of that. But um, there's a couple other things that you said that I just kind of wanted to touch on before we wrap up our time together. So I appreciate so much your insight into age appropriate or segregation in the church. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that throughout scripture, all we see are families taught together. And I'm not saying there's not a time and a place to minister to people where they're at, but it's irregular. It's not the norm, right? So I appreciate that. Another thing you kind of talked about, and I guess a question that arose in my mind as you were talking, talk for a minute to the Christian who's struggling with the idea of Are we then to shelter or to equip our children, right? So as Christian parents, we are to protect our children from a lot of the difficulties of the world. But it seems as though maybe there's been an overprotection, a sheltering, because we're not equipping our kids enough to enter into the world at some point. So the first conference that you went to, correct me if I'm wrong, where you first heard Ken Ham was a homeschooling conference, right? That's right, yeah. Were you homeschooled? I was, yeah. Okay, up until high school? Yeah. Okay, so just talk to me a little bit about that. What do you think about sheltering kids as opposed to equipping kids? Right. And, and when are kids ready to be introduced to some of these theories? And I'll just say, this isn't all Answers in Genesis stuff. I'm just asking Patricia now yeah. personally because I find this a fascinating topic. Yeah, so of course I, I worked at a greenhouse for a lot of years, so yep. I'm going to use a greenhouse analogy here. So if you have a little a little seedling that's just growing up, you're not going to put it outside in the cold elements right away. So you absolutely do need to have a, a sheltering aspect. But then as it grows, as you're ready to start planting it, you, there's this hardening off process where you leave it out for a little bit and then you bring it back in and you leave it out and you bring it back in and you make sure that you are equipping it, but you're also sheltering it at the same time. So I don't think it has to be an either or thing. It should be a both and thing. So I do think it's really important that parents do have some sort of sheltering aspect, especially because kids are like tofu and they just absorb all the flavors (laughs) around them. So you want to make sure that the strongest influences in your kids' lives are godly ones, however that looks. So I think, though, what sometimes happens is it goes so much the other way that as you're sheltering kids, you don't actually have the hardening off process where you're exposing them to the elements that they're going to be facing. So, for instance, I talked to a university chaplain in Canada. It was actually the first interview I did on my trip. And he was talking about how what he sees sometimes is kids come to campus and they haven't even been taught about evolution or other worldviews. So then once they get to campus, of course, they're just blindsided by everything. So I think it's really important that that youth understand the most common arguments they are going to get against their faith, the most common ways that culture attacks Genesis, answers to those questions, and also that they learn about other worldviews even. So like what people from an Islamic background believe, what people in Buddhism and Hinduism mm-hmm. believe and different cults. Like I think kids absolutely need to learn about that from a biblical perspective and have the critical thinking tools they need to be able to process new information like that that conflicts with the Bible. So then, yeah, there's the sheltering, but you also really have to be very intentional about equipping them as well. 
That's good. And it sounds like uh, with all of your answers, and I appreciate how thoughtful you are in all of them. And I think one of the big ideas it seems like you keep coming back to is that everything is intentional, right? It's like as parents, as pastors, as youth pastors, as you know, mentors in the church, um, we need to be intentionally thinking through. Don't let these things just happen. Don't just send your kids to public school. Don't just homeschool them. Don't just whatever the case is, do it thoughtfully. And, and I think that's a really, really good principle in that we need to shelter our kids and there's a time and a place to shelter and there's a time and a place to equip. And part of the equipping also means letting them see the the darkness of the world and the darkness of competing worldviews because they're going to get taught it at some point and who better to teach it than somebody with a godly worldview who's teaching it to them with the purpose of strengthening them and equipping them. Exactly. That's awesome. Okay, so where can people find you, find uh, if if somebody wants to, if there's a youth pastor listening right now, if there's a pastor listening right now and they want to get in touch with you to have you come and speak to the youth of the church or the entire church since we're not super into segregation. Yeah. (laughs) How can they get in touch with you? Right. So you can definitely go to the Answers in Genesis Canada website, Facebook page, shoot us an email. We're going to be actively calling churches as well, trying to find places to speak. And then they can, of course, follow the blog I'm out there on Instagram and Facebook. I'm going to be posting day by day about what the trip was like, different articles, resources. They can come to the, the mega conference happening in November. I'm going to be speaking there, outlining all the critical thinking tools and the system of critical thinking and biblical thinking that I use myself as a student in secular university. Also getting that talk in an ebook format right now, which is just being reviewed. So we're hoping to have that available by the conference for free download when you sign up to the Answers in Genesis newsletter as well. So lots of different channels, but yeah, definitely would... You'd uh, want to start with Answers in Genesis Canada online and go from there. Awesome. And and the conference is going to be good. I have a few friends who are going to be there as well. Corey McKenna, who's been on the show several times, Cal Smith, and of course, Patricia will be there. So uh, take a look at that. We'll link to uh, the sign up for that conference in the show notes. So check that out as well. And uh, I just want to kind of wrap up with why this is so important. I mean, obviously, we want kids to be equipped and to go into university and not lose their faith. We've already talked about that. That's huge. But even as you just look at, so we started this episode. Episode by looking at a news item in the secular schools, a teacher who's teaching their student, this, their six-year-old Christian student, that she's not really a girl because gender is just a social construct. And all of this plays into why is this so important? Why, how is it that we've gotten into a world that can no longer tell the difference between a boy and a girl? This goes back to the passage in Isaiah that says, woe to those who call darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who call bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in that world now where we call boys, girls and girls, boys, where what God created and said very good, we call the product of random chance. And when you see students and kids who are struggling, believing that they're the gender other than their biological sex at birth, when they shoot up schools, all these kinds of things, what else do we expect from a generation of kids who are being raised on the information that they're just a cosmic accident, that they're just a sack of protoplasm bobbing on the surface of the cosmos, and that God doesn't exist, and if he did, he didn't, doesn't care about them. What else do we expect when we tell them that what they really need in life isn't atonement for their sin, isn't a savior, but is just to look deep inside their dark heart and pull out whatever's there. And then we get surprised when what they pull out there is so destructive. And so this stuff, it really, really matters. Genesis is absolutely key to understanding the gospel and the biblical narrative. And I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing and the work that Answers in Genesis is doing. So thank you. And thanks for being on here. Any last words that you want to say to our listeners? Well, thanks for having me. And I hope you come out 
to the conference and get in touch. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for being here and take a look at the show notes and uh, we'll include in there all the different ways that you can get in touch with Patricia and connected to Answers in Genesis. See you next week. Thank you.